In the Republic, Plato says, There will be no end to the troubles of the state, or indeed of humanity, until philosophers become kings, or until those we now call kings really and truly become philosophers. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Before we jump into the conversation, I just wanted to let you know about our eight-week summer courses that are starting in June. The first one is Newman's Idea of a University, taught by senior fellow Dr. Jared Stout. The second will be actually with one of today's guests, senior fellow Dr. Pavlos Papadopoulos. He will be teaching a course on Plato's Republic. Head to magnusinstitute.org to learn more and register. And welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson, joined by Larissa Bianco. And this is a new season of the podcast since we started doing seasons. We're in probably three, four seasons. Season three. three. Season three. Congratulations on what you've done with this thing, Larissa. Since you got involved, I mean... Our listenership is is really impressed everybody. Uh, above 50 or 60,000 downloads at last count. And so that's pretty impressive in a world where everybody has a podcast and we too have a podcast. Um, more people are listening to this podcast than are producing it, which is pretty impressive. So good job to you. How you doing, Larissa? I'm doing well. Awesome. Enough with this small talk. We have two amazing guests today to kick off this season. Joseph Pierce. Hello, Joseph. Oh, John, how are you? I'm good. So Joseph is one of the very beginning founding, you could say, uh, Albertus Magnus Institute senior fellows. He's done a great job teaching courses for us. Fellows love him, and we can't wait to have you teach again. So thanks for being here today. And the great, the one, the only. Celebrity of Wyoming, the one and only. Him, it's him and Liz Cheney is what Wyoming is known for. Pavlos Papadopoulos, good to see you, brother. Hello, everyone. It's good to be a big fish in a small pond in the smallest state in the country. Yeah, I know the feeling. That's awesome. Medium-sized fish, maybe. That's right. So, everybody, this is going to be an awesome discussion, and I won't have too much more to say. But Larissa, you want to tee this up? We're gonna we're gonna be discussing a, f- a better form of government, uh, democracy and monarchy. So so you tee it up. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So here in America, a democratic republic or democracy, however we want to talk about it, is an American's go to. Right. We're all taught in school that America is a democracy, and but most people don't actually know what that means. We're just taught that it's the best form of government and down with the king. But I want to know, is this actually the case? Why in America are we so against monarchies? And we're often taught even that almost any time a king has been overthrown, it's been for a good reason. And well, I'm not going to go into too much into it because I want you two to go into it. So either one of you can start. I just want to know, 
is there a better form of government? Or is there a best form of government? Or is there a middle ground between the two forms of government? I tend to think that if I were the king, it'd be the best form of government. Well, yes. So does everybody else. (laughs) Yeah, we got to coronate me. Okay, so (laughs) Joseph, you kick us off. Democracy or monarchy? Go. Uh, well, before I do that, I'm going to be I'm going to be a little bit provocative, just for the sake of it. But, but I, I will. I, <laughs> but, I, but I will presage the comment by saying I'm playing devil's advocate, and this is I I am distancing myself from what I'm about to say. Okay, but there's a there's a cynic a, a modernist a, sorry monarchist cynical position which says that uh, because it's true that power tends to corrupt, as Lord Acton says, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Therefore, uh, because monarchs tend to have uh, too much power in the hands of one person, they tend to be corrupt. Uh, And if they're absolutist monarchs, they tend to be absolutely corrupt. Uh, Therefore, you know, um, monarchies are normally corrupt forms of government. You do occasionally, rarely, get a good king. Uh, normally that's connected to the fact that he's also um, uh, a virtuous person. In the case, for instance, of St. Edward the Confessor, a canonized saint of the church. But I mean, these are exceptions and not the rule, right? So, but the, the cynical modernist position is, so monarchy guarantees bad government at least 90% of the time. Democracy guarantees bad government 100% of the time. That's my, <laughs> that's my provocative start. <laughs> um, I, I, I perhaps will let, I'll let Pavlos come in on that, but I said I'm, I'm, I'm reiterating the fact I'm distancing myself from saying that, but I think it's a, it, might be, it might be a good place to, as a catalyst to get us going. So maybe if Pavlos wants to comment from there and, and I'll come in, come in up thereafter. Yeah, we should be thinking about the floor and the ceiling, right? Um, Classical political philosophy is concerned with figuring out what the best form of government is and is also concerned with doing what can be done to avoid tyranny, to sort of uh, avoid the worst manifestations uh, of corruption. And so I think if you you turn to the the classical tradition, Plato, especially Aristotle, we could think about Xenophon and Cicero as well, um, even up to St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, they they are concerned with both saying this, this is the regime that would be best, which itself requires a very long list of preconditions, right? The best form of government uh, cannot be simply instituted anywhere. It actually requires a certain kind of people, perhaps even a certain kind of location, place, economic conditions, geographic conditions, uh, but it is the task of the philosopher to say, um, here, here is what the ideal is, not an ideal in the sense of something that we dream up that can never be instituted, but what we should be guiding all of our practical matters towards, the sort of standard that we should be uh, using to judge our practical matters. And yet they're also um, quite realistic. The, the classical philosophers are, are idealists and realists at the same time without coming into contradiction with themselves. They're very aware of the tendency of power to corrupt they're very aware of the need for um, institutions, above all, education for formation to virtue, uh, to try to make those who rule uh, as virtuous as possible, and to try and, even though they do not create a system of checks and balances that we might be familiar with, uh, to try to mitigate the worst tendencies of human beings that would manifest uh, in tyranny. Um, so I would say I'm, I spend many much of my time um, teaching the classical philo- classical political philosophers. And I think they would say 
um, that, well, monarchy actually might be the best form of government, uh, simply. But Aristotle would make an additional distinction and say there's the best government, the best regime simply, and it is the best uh, practicable regime, uh, the best regime that is likely to come into being. Uh, and once you start moving in that direction, um, he will not affirm democracy as the best or not a pure democracy, uh, but Aristotle and others in the tradition will say that we actually need a mixed regime. We, we need something that's not pure democracy or pure monarchy. We need something, a regime that incorporates different kinds of classes, that includes rule by the one and the few and the many, not just the one monarchy, not just the many democracy, not just what's in between oligarchy or aristocracy, the few, but we need a regime that incorporates all of them because each of these classes um, and modes of exercising power have distinctive strengths and weaknesses and distinctive tendencies. And so you might luck out in really any form of government. You might luck out even in a democracy and have a reasonably good democratic government. Uh, but the prudent thing to do uh, is to construct a regime that is actually neither democratic nor monarchical, uh, but takes the best of each and tries to control for uh, the worst in each. So to cultivate a just and virtuous people, that would necessarily sort of spring forth a just and virtuous king or a just and virtuous system of government. But then again, if the people were perfectly just and virtuous, they wouldn't have need for either. So obviously a, a, a political regime is for the sake of ruling and also cultivating some order. So how do you how do you strike a balance there if disorder necessitates rule? Uh, Joseph, say, yeah, go yeah, ahead. What I would say, John, is 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 that and it's really continuing from Pavlos has said. Uh, he's laid the uh, should we say the classical political philosophical foundations with with what he said there, and um, in more recent manifestations of that, but rooted in the same principles as so called conservative. I don't like the term conservative. I don't like the term liberal. Um, I, I think they, 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 they're more confusing than anything else. But but the so-called conservative uh, uh, maxim or axiom of, of, of um, Edmund Burke, the liberty itself must be limited in order to be possessed, is one of the paradoxes that we have to take into account whenever we talk about politics. Liberty itself must be limited in order to be possessed. And, and, and the absence of that actually is Oscar Wilde's words from one of his poems, anarchy is freedom's own Judas. The anarchy is the act that betrays freedom with a kiss. Um, and then the final one is a so-called liberal maxim or axiom by Lord Acton, which I've referred to already. The power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt, absolutely. So the 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 the, the, the tension then is between, uh, you do have to have a limitation upon liberty in order to have it, but you also have to have a limit, limitation upon the uh, the liberty of rulers <laughs> uh, so, that they, so they don't become corrupt. So this this is the tension, and I think it's um, it's it's what's discussed in Catholic social te teaching in various encyclicals, such as Leo the Thirteenth, Verum Novarum, and Quadragesima Anno by Pius the Eleventh, and Tetesimus uh, Annus by uh, uh, Saint John Paul II. Uh, it's this tension between solidarity on the one hand, uh, for want of a better word, the common good, uh, and and subsidiarity, so individual liberty and the liberty of the of the family in particular from uh, undue uh, uh, coercion and control by the state. So so that that they're, they're the tensions, they're the parameters, they're the things we have to work uh, with. Um, we, we we need to we need to be be aware that liberty must be limited to be possessed, 
in order to attain uh, some form of solidarity. Um, we also have to be aware that the power tends to corrupt and the, and, and, and the, 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 the awareness of that allows us to, to, to work towards uh, ideas of subsidiarity. And, and I think that a, a sound political philosophy is to be found in the Catholic Church's teaching on, on, on this. I would add to that uh, that the Catholic social teaching reiterates the flexibility of its own principles when manifested in politics, right? In terms of different regime forms, there is increasingly in the 20th century in, in John Paul II, um, much affirmation of uh, democratic principles in the sense of widespread uh, participation in politics being afforded to the population. Um, but he's he's writing those encyclicals in the context of the Cold War, where it seems like the two alternatives are not democracy and monarchy, unfortunately, but but Western democracy, warts and all, and uh, Eastern totalitarianism. Um, but JP two and others throughout the tradition, going back through Thomas Aquinas, all the way back to Aristotle, um, and finding support in uh, the words of Christ himself. Uh, the Catholic uh, Catholic Church's teaching on politics holds back from prescribing a specific regime form, right? We could we could think about the, the restraint on the part of Christianity in contrast to, for example, Islam, which has an even more robustly worked out um, teaching for politics and economics and society, um, more robustly worked out uh, perhaps to its own detriment or the detriment of those who uh, who live by that, that, um, that teaching. There is a certain uh, prudent, I use the term flexibility, and what I really, really mean is prudent flexibility or prudence in seeing um, what is the best form of organizing society, organizing common life to secure the common good, given these parameters that we have manifested in this particular situation. I think it is uh, part of the wisdom of the, of the church's um, speaking on politics, teaching on politics, that it does not say uh, there is one legitimate form of government. And then there is an illegitimate form of government. It says, actually, there are certain goals that society must be ordered towards in order for it to be a good society. And human affairs is extremely complex. And so we need to cultivate the prudence to determine what the proper means are towards uh, securing the goals that will lead to uh, human happiness and human salvation. So fundamentally, what the church would agree with Aristotle, I mean, explicitly, they would agree that the family is the fundamental unit of the polis. Would we be right to call the family a polis itself, or is this something uh, preternatural to the to the to the the polis that is constructed? I would say I'm, that I would say. Go that, ahead. Sorry. So I was. I would say that both. But it, it depends upon how you define, define the polis. So mm -hmm. I would say that both both of those are true. Um, uh, but depending upon how you how you define the polis, the, the, the family predates the state. That's the important thing, and doesn't doesn't only predate the state. It actually um, uh, it it um, has a, a, a preeminent position over the state. So uh, so that's 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 the crucial thing. Um, and um, so I, I did one other thing. I would just say just a comment before I, I pass over to Pavlos again. Now I agree completely with what Pavlos says about you know we, we need we need a, a, a prudent flexibility. Prudence is always good. It's a it's a, it's a virtue. But I, I would I would just add, and I agree that the church doesn't prescribe a specific form of government because for simple reasons because uh, there's so much flexibility and change in, in 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 human cultures and in human history that 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 just wouldn't be 
wouldn't be workable. But what it does do, I think, with, with, with concepts such as subsidiarity and solidarity, it's not just prudent flexibility, I think it's principled flexibility. In other words, the flexibility has to be rooted on in those principles. If you violate the principles of solidarity and subsidiarity, you're violating principles of justice. How do we, so Joseph, uh, you, you said something I want to pick up on. How do we define polis? What it, let's just zoom out. What's the the simplest definition of that term? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to Pavlos. And he's, he's a bit of political philosopher. But if we talk about polis as in as in a political structure, then obviously the family is a political structure in that broadest uh, understanding of the word. Uh, other forms of other forms of political structures that form more complicated forms of, of what we could call a polis uh, developed from there, but the family comes first. But Pavlos would be much better at, at giving specific classical right, definitions. What is the specific classical definition of a polis? Is it a structure? Could we even call the family a structure given that it is natural? I would, I would note, uh, so the polis, the city, um, the authoritative political community, ap- apologies, I'm using the term in some way in my in my definition. Um, Aristotle describes it as a kind of collection of villages, which are themselves collections of families that have been brought together. Um, it doesn't say this directly, but more or less around a common conception of justice and actually following principles of subsidiarity is able to bring human life in that community to a higher level uh, than is possible in a village. Um, much smaller scale, or is possible in in a family, much less a, an individual, or is possible in something that might be at a, on a much larger scale, a nation, an empire, but which has sort of become so diffused that it is not able to pursue and order its citizens towards uh, a common life together. Um, so I would I would note that both Aristotle and then picking up on Aristotle, um, Saint Thomas in his treatise on law. They maintain uh, what Joseph was pointing to about the, well, at least uh, St. Thomas certainly does, um, the kind of supremacy of the family in a certain sense. Uh, but they also note the need that the family itself has for, for the city. Um, and I think, I think we can make sense of this by, by acknowledging that uh, the family needs the, the polis, but the polis also serves the family and must respect the family and must kind of complete the task of the family. Um, the argument that Aristotle makes the very end of his ethics as a way of transitioning to his politics, and then that um, St. Thomas makes uh, in his question on on the human law, on the need for a human law in addition to a natural law as well as divine law, uh, is that political authority can do things that fathers cannot do, that parents cannot do. Such um, as? Such as punish. I mean, that's that's the explicit uh, a, a example that he gives: punish uh, with death, <laughs> um, and that's that's a rather dark way of getting into the the conversation. But that's one of St. Thomas's examples. Uh, we can think of uh, other um, other examples of of goals that the polis can pursue. I would I would say there are certain uh, leisurely pursuits that are are made possible on a scale outside of the household. Uh, you could think of colleges and other associations. Um, bringing the church in here would be interesting. If the family is also a domestic church, that might that might um, be food for thought. Uh, but there are certain kinds of activities, especially connected with leisure, that um, human beings are freed to engage in when they are living in a society of a sufficient scale, which, to be properly ordered, should defer to and in a way order itself 
uh, to the families and the activities that happened within the families, but which themselves, or which itself, the, the, the polis, um, is able to sort of bring the family to do something it could not do on its own terms. So, Pablos, so to, is, ahead, the, yeah. is the Blessed Trinity, in a sense, a fundamental polis, an archetypical polis, or is that it's, I know it's very, I, I know you didn't come on here to it, talk about it Trinitarian seems to me theology. Like it, it may, I, I'm not a theologian, but I would, uh, it, it seems to me like the, the family is a better, um, referent for that, uh, than the polis. I, I don't know. I, I would want to circle back to something you had said earlier, John, about, uh, if we were all virtuous, we would not need government. I'm not, I think you said something along those lines. I'm not even sure that St. Thomas would agree with that. It seems like it, even that that uh, politics and law are not necessary only because we're fallen. Maybe the scope of what politics and law do is greatly increased by the fact that it has to punish the wicked, restrain the wicked, and protect the innocent. Uh, but it seems to me that there are, at a certain scale, we need um, someone to be the decision maker. I'm sorry to make, I guess, an argument for monarchy to come back to our topic. Uh, we need someone to sort of be able to specify what the best course of action is among many uh, non, uh, uh, valid uh, courses of action. I think that's uh, true. So, okay. So if we take some foundational starting points, one, the family is the fundamental political unit and then subsidiarity, things should be done uh, together at, at as local a level as possible and solidarity. They should, they should be done for the common good organically. And it's interesting because St. Thomas in a, in a funny enough place in explaining why incest is sinful, um, you know, it's like, wh why can't you just marry your sister or something? You'd expect him as moderns to say, you know, you're going to make funny looking children or inbred ge genetics or something. But he, but he basically says, because you're not going to meet new friends and you're not going to cross pollinate the political order. So if we start from this building block of the family, and that has to organically grow into something else that is most suitable for the, the sustenance of that family in cooperation with other families. Then what's the next level up? Um, is that looks, does that look something like uh, tribalism or uh, ultimately a city state? Like where do we go from the family? If we're just, you know, thinking about this uh, foundationally and building up from there, what comes next organically? So I perhaps could uh, um, take us forward in, into Warp Factor Five uh, in Star Trek terms, um, uh, because obviously these these are good foundational principles. But the problem is, you know, even the city states in Greece were were, were, were small market towns by modern standards. Five thousand people. Yeah, five thousand. Yeah, if that, right? Well, that, that makes it smaller than a market town. The average market town in England is about fifteen thousand. So, um, yep. so the. the so the point is, what when we talk about a city in terms of uh, a modern understanding of it and, the, and and the way it was understood by the Greeks, we're not talking about the same thing. That's the first problem. And I think I think what we have in place uh, because of just the human tendency uh, for 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 being humans, uh, there's there is those those with power tend to actually want more, and the more power they have, the more power they have to get more. So you have you have this um, uh, natural tendency for power to become more and more centralized. 
So I would argue that the, the problem we have with, with kings is now the problem we have with macro democracies, that uh, the, the democracy, for instance, in the United States at the moment, uh, that the federal government is so, so far removed from the ordinary family or from the ordinary man on the street or from the needs of local areas whether it be at the, at the level of a state, the level of a, of, of a, of a, a town or, or, or a county, that, that, that the federal government should not have the power it has uh, over localities and families um, because it's become too big, so out of touch and so undemocratic. That's the other thing is that what is democracy? That democracy here ultimately has to be where the people have some real power over their political destinies. Um, and and as as government gets bigger and bigger and further and further away from the people, our our votes become smaller and smaller drops in a bigger and bigger ocean, and we become more and more basically um, uh, disempowered. That's the problem we have now. And so we need to look at practical ways of de devolving power away from large central governments back towards localities, back towards families, back towards uh, local governments, state governments, uh, using using American terms. So that, that that's the problem. How do we make democracy democratic again? Uh, and insofar as democracy can be defined as subsidiarity, as people having genuine, authentic power over their own political destinies, um, then, of course, we should be democratic. But the problem is our democracies are not democratic uh, and they're becoming less so. So that's the problem we need to address. Yeah, that's a great question. So, Joseph, uh, uh, and as you mentioned, right, that the Greek city states were probably, you know, less than 10,000 people. And then and then when they became too big, they would sort of go off and become a new city state. And, you know, Athens would kind of come in and corral everybody. Uh, but Pavlos, uh, so that is the problem that we're facing now, right? And even this is on a on a church level, right? A bishop in the medieval era would have a sea of a couple thousand people, even even in a, in a large in a large sea. And now, you know, look, how many people are in Los Angeles, right? How many people does Archbishop Gomez uh, have have Episcopal reign over? It's way too many for anything like subsidiarity to function, right? It's 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 impossible. And that definitely applies to the federal government. So maybe using lessons from the past, is there a way to move back toward a decentralized, smaller polis? Uh, I'm not saying, although I much desire that, I'm not sanguine on my ability to uh, pull out many examples from the past of that happening short right. of some kind of cataclysm, which may be... Uh, in the nature of barbarian invasions or something of that kind. Um, is that what it takes? I mean, that's well, probably guess, it, right? What I was thinking of is talking about this, you know, the the limits to the growth of the Greek polis. Uh, and the great exception is not found in a Greek polis. It's found in Rome. And Rome is the city, the ancient city, um, very similar in its foundations, similar in its foundations to the Greek cities, that is able to expand and expand and expand into a very large city, into a republic that spans a whole peninsula, and then eventually the whole Mediterranean. And that brings with it its own problems. Um, that brings with it um, a sort of corruption into an oligarchic form of government from a virtuous uh, aristocratic republic that was uh, established after the overthrow of the kings, which then devolves um, into sort of chronic civil war and needs to be overcome. Uh, that, that sort of uh, dysfunction needs to be overcome and broken by 
a monarch by a single a single figure by Caesar and then and then Augustus Caesar and hmm. unfortunately what the, the effect of that is not to sort of restore maybe maybe it is to some extent in the provinces to restore subsidiarity to to the people off in the in the edges of the empire um but it is to actually concentrate power uh, in the central authority at least those who he can reach uh in his environs which works out very well when you have a good Caesar and and not so well when you have a bad Caesar. And so I I I'm teaching a class now on on medieval um medieval texts. We're just reading Beowulf and so I'm I'm very much thinking about the collapse of the Roman Empire and what what emerges out of it. Uh and it's it's not clear to me that there is a an easy route from that centralization of authority to to devolution much as I I I desire that. Um, so I catechism if, or strongman, and probably or probably both. Well, the the alternative, if we go back to Rome and the establishment of the republic in the first place, uh, is an aristocratic revolution, right? A revolution of a small number of 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 people who themselves are virtuous and who, in an attempt to act for the common good, um, depose the single authority that has become tyrannical. I don't know what the analog for that would be with the uh, United States federal government, though. I'm I'm eager to find out. Joseph. Yeah, something, a couple of things. Um, we need to distinguish between uh, church and secular state here. I'm not saying we need, we need uh, I'm not saying I'm an anti-integralist. We, we, we need to separate them in terms of our political philosophy, but we do have to distinguish. So for instance, the, that um, it, 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 we don't, the, 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 we have to distinguish between the church of man. So the city of man, and the city of God. Uh, the, the, the Catholic Church uh, is uh, the, the largest part of the Catholic Church is the Church triumphant in heaven, and it's a monarchy under Christ the King. So, so th th this is what the Catholic Church is, and and the, the, the part of the Church which, which is moving through time is the Church militant, the Church at war, and that is also under the under the divine monarchy of Christ the King. The queenship of, of Mary, um, and the, the the bishops of the church are princes. So uh, we can't uh, talk about Bishop Gomez or Archbishop Gomez, Cardinal Gomez, or whatever uh, in uh, in Los Angeles and other uh, members of the hierarchy of the church. The same way we talk about uh, a hierarchical secular aristocracy or or a democratic republic, um, because they're not the same thing. The city of God and the city of man uh, are not the same thing, and we and we, we should not to con uh, conflate them. So yeah. that's something I, I, did, I, did, I did want to, to make, make clear here, so we're not getting confused on that one. But the other question I would like to say, I mean, you know, is, is it, having established principles, such as subsidiarity and solidarity, uh, is it possible to put uh, to get a just society once um the the, the things have decayed to such a degree uh in, ter in in terms of where we happen to be so the roman empire was talked about the the, the last days of the roman empire with it everything beginning to collapse um and and then you have barbarism and then you have the and then you then you have to have the strong man so you know again um liberty itself must be limited in order to be possessed there's a progression here if that liberty is not is not uh, limited in order to be possessed you you have the the, the, the the evolution devolution revolution into anarchy, which is freedom's own Judas. And then once you've got freedom's own Judas, you then have effectively the rule of the gang, right? Whoever's strongest on the streets has the power and tyrannizes everybody else. And that's when the people then demand a strong man, the, the most powerful gang leader, to get rid of all the other gangs. So at least they have one person to, to, to rule over. And then at some point you have the demand for liberty itself must be limited in order to be possessed. 
and you have some some sort some sort of movement again towards political justice. That seems to be the cycle uh, that we, we look at through history. So the, the important thing is, however, that we have to keep the principles in mind because otherwise, if we only if we, if we only have pragmatism, we actually forget what's right and wrong. Pavlos is the reason that the United States, for instance, has been more and more attracted to. We'll just take Donald Trump, for instance, right? He's he's essentially, you know, a strong man, you know, not not in a way that others have been, but he he is sort of a fruit of our desire to decentralize and break up the gangs. Is that fair to say that that is sort of a current in American political desire? I think it's absolutely a current, and I think that is a um, helpful, sympathetic way to understand Trump and the support for Trump. Uh, and I think that his uh, failure in his in his administration to to solve that problem of breaking up the the oligarchy and breaking up um, the uh, uh, oppressive elements of the administrative state and the frankly anti-democratic, anti-constitutional elements of the administrative state uh, is simply a testament to uh, the the challenge, uh, the 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 magnitude of the challenge that has. Um, that has manifested in those anti-constitutional uh, elements that have sprung up in our regime, um, in the American regime. So yes, so, I think there's a, and I I would say that there's, I think there's actually a widespread desire that goes far beyond uh, people who who like Trump or or would vote for him, uh, a recognition of dysfunction, um, a recognition of increasingly unjust economic conditions, a recognition of sort of breakdown of of um, the elements of good earthly life. Um, within our within our nation, uh, that has uh, the potential f- to be manifested on you know on the right or the left. Uh, what those are very limited in their utility, as Joseph mentioned. Um, that there's a there's a real desire because there's a recognition that we're living in a kind of decaying oligarchy, and it's hard to know how to deal with an oligarchy except uh, except with mu- one man, as as painful as it is for me to admit. So, Joseph, do you see? A, a, an alternative to either anarchy I mean, right now in America, in America today, where we're going, if, if the elected strong man, let's presume has failed to um, de disintegrate the, the decentralized federal uh, Leviathan, right? Is there an alternative? Is it anarchy or an even stronger, stronger man? Is there a way to do this peacefully to get back to the constitutional ideals? Or are we just going to be along for a really bumpy ride? Well, I think the most important thing is, is to be uh, involved in practical politics. And that doesn't mean uh, going out and, and, and joining a particular political party. I'm not saying people should do, shouldn't do that, but that's not what it's about. Every dollar we spend is a vote. We can actually change society for the better every single day with every dollar we spend. And insofar as we're not doing that, we are part of the problem. So we, 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 the, the solution begins at a local level. Now, if, if we get strong local economies, we, we'll have strong local cultures. If we have strong local cultures, we'll have demand for strong local politics. It will be a grassroots revolution from the from the families upwards, from communities upwards, uh, you know, can 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 we do anything as individuals to dismantle the globalist uh, uh, Goliath that's out there, the, the the juggernaut that's there? No, we can't uh, go up and, and slay it ourselves. But we can start at grassroots level and undermine it. And if enough people enough people do that, in other words, we need to start a movement 
that just gets people. Localism is a good word. I like the word localism. Localism is subsidiarity in practice, and it leads towards solidarity. And we can do it on a day-to-day basis, rather than looking at our screens, ringing, you know, putting our hair out because everything's wrong, and and having our peace uh, ruined, losing sight of the finishing line of heaven because we, we're so angst-ridden by what's wrong with the world, uh, we should be doing something about it. And that means every single day of our lives, we should be making the world better with every dollar we spend, because every dollar we spend is a vote. So we used to be doing, doing things about this. All of us need to be doing things about this and, and, and becoming evangelists to getting other people to do something about this. Pavlos. Uh, is there a peaceful way out? Uh, I, I agree with everything that Joseph has said about the importance of localism. I, I actually am someone who has gotten involved in my local political party. So thank you for that clarification that you weren't recommending against that. Um, and I, I believe very strongly in that, the need to um, shape shape the economy through one's own actions and spending. Uh, at the same time, I would, I would um, maybe strike a more um, pessimistic note and just, just put it this way that, um, well, pessimism and, and hope together, darkness and hope together, uh, that there is, uh, that decline might be very slow, and that means that we have some time, or, or that uh, there is potential for that kind of very long process of rebuilding a culture from the ground up, from the grassroots up, uh, to to take place uh, in the provinces, sort of out of uh, away from the eye of Sauron. Right? Uh, it, we may <laughs> actually have some time uh, to build up those structures. At the sa- so that's my sort of hopeful element. At the same time. Um, on the very principles of subsidiarity, I would note that there are certain problems that can only be solved at a higher level. I say this again as someone who who affirms localism, but who also wants to say that localism and whatever you want to call it, nationalism, are actually compatible, certainly within a, a kind of federal system or a, a nation whose culture includes sort of loc- strong local communities as well as an overarching authority. The overarching authority, whether it's a, a, a king or a queen or a, a parliament or uh, a federal government has certain uh, duties and rights that are proper to it. And uh, in the best constituted government, those correspond to the activities that only it is competent uh, to engage in. And so if if our problems trickling down to the local level include multinational corporations, then we might need a national or international effort uh, to to take on those multinational corporations in their in their worst manifestations, precisely to create room for local communities and families, as well as the church and all these other uh, institutions, uh, to be able to uh, uh, act freely in their proper lower, in some cases, lower sphere. I agree completely, Pavlos. And for instance, I think that an example of what you're talking about would be Viktor Orban and what he's been doing in 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 Hungary. Um, that I'm absolutely in favour, of course, of of authentic nationalism in in the sense of uh, nationalism being the only antidote to internationalism to globalism. Um, it, that's na- nationalism. In this sense is subsidiarist. right? It, it it says no that which that which affects the nation should be c- c- governed by the nation, not by globalist institutions. So. That form of nationalism is actually a form of subsidiarity. Um, so I agree with you fully. I'm not. I'm, there's nothing you've said there uh, of which I have any problem with. Is is there a time to throw in the towel on the American experiment? In other words, is is it possible to correct course, or will there will there come a day when we say, okay, nice try, but 
we just need a good king or we need a completely new constitution. And I don't want to, you know, doom it too much, right? Because we all want to be hopeful. But can I, can I be a patriot? Can I be a patriotic Englishman here for a moment? <laughs> oh yes. Um, well, I, I would argue that the present UK constitution um, is is actually better than than the uh, the uh, the American system. Now I'll get shot down in flames here now, of course. <laughs> but yeah, it makes it interesting. So, for instance, it's not that the power's not being used, but it's there. That the, the laws are signed, the laws become law in the UK because they're signed by the monarch. Now it was the it was the policy of Queen Elizabeth II to basically not interfere. She held her nose when she signed things such as on abortion and on entering the common market. We know she was against those things, but she decided it's not my job. But it is her job, and the perfect thing about it. Or his job now that not that he'll be he'll be worse but um that again not nine times out of ten you're going to get a bad monarch but the system is that the, the monarch if the monarch uh refuses to sign into law a law that's popular with the people and you have the government and the people against the monarch it's the end of the monarchy right mm. so the monarchy has very limited power but it has very real power if on the other hand the government passes a law which which the monarch knows is unpopular with the people Right, the monarch can then refuse to sign that, and the government would have to back down. So this, this, there's actually checks and balances already in place in the UK constitution, which is not working because it's not being used or employed by the monarch. They become very, very bashful uh, as regards the, the, the role that they have to play. Um, but it's there, and and that's the sort of checks and balances balances we want. Whether you know whether something similar could be done with a, an elected president. I don't know um, in the in the USA, but that's that, that's a principle that just allows us to look at the problem, if you like, from a slightly different angle. I would I would say I'm I'm wondering how Aristotle would analyze what you just described, and I think he would say that the British Constitution has an element of one, a few, and of many. The one is the monarch, the few is the rest of the government, and the many is the people out there. And so, even if there isn't a um, principle of popular sovereignty sort of suffusing uh, that that unwritten constitution. Uh, there is a kind of ability to appeal to the many by the one to check the few. And um, and this is the kind of, this is the way that politics always unfolds in better or worse for, forms. Um, I'd say that the American constitution tried to institute something like that um, of an element of one, few, and many uh, within, just within the Within the the federal system itself, so but it's also president, president, Senate, Congress. Or yeah, or House you could or... you could slice it another way: president, judiciary, Congress taken together. Um, it's uh, also yeah. complicated yeah. because you have federal as well as state um, state governments whose authority is not derived from the federal government; it's, it's derived from the people. And every element of the federal government is understood or was understood to to have its legitimate authority derived from. The people as well, um, and so we have a kind of tradition uh, in the United States of appealing to the people as seeing uh, popular consent as the ground for a legitimacy of government. Um, I have a difficult time comparing uh, the UK and the US, uh, in part due to my ignorance, but also in part due to just the complexity. It seems like how would I know which one is better? It seems like either could come to violent revolution or sort of peaceful and fruitful reform. Uh, it's hard to know which one is more likely or um, in, in either case. Joseph, um, what power does the monarch in Great Britain have over the whole government? Could could the king 
dissolve the whole thing um or is it is it more limited and and again this is my ignorance but break it but down also, for us I, i'm not i'm not a constitutional lawyer as regards to the uk constitution and, and i and, and that those things have been changed over the period the glorious revolution <laughs> glorious revolution in 1688 which was basically uh, uh, where, where the the the, uh, the plutocracy paid for an army of foreign mercenaries to invade their own country to remove the legitimate monarch <laughs> it was a revolution there's nothing glorious about it but 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 basically the the the, 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 the constitution was changed after that to, to, to make it very difficult for the monarch to uh, to wield the sort of power the monarchy had wielded prior to that i don't know the intricacies i don't know the details but i would be very surprised that the the, the monarch today has the power to dissolve government um yeah. uh, unilaterally i mean you know by just just of his own authority i'm sure that's no longer the case right if i could return to the question that john had posed earlier which was is a time to give up the on the american experiment i would i would note that um there may be mechanisms within the American government uh, for solving our, our current corruption and impasse. There's also, I would want to step back from, from the American government that was instituted in the, in the 1770s and 80s, um, and looking at the thought and writings of the founders more generally, they were steeped in the classical tradition, in classical history, and to some extent, political philosophy, as well as more recent Enlightenment thought. And something that they have in common with the great tradition of political thought is the very prudent flexibility that we had referred to uh, earlier. Uh, in other words, if, if you go looking, you will find Hamilton, you will find Franklin, uh, you will find Adams, all of these great figures of the revolutionary period affirming that a Republican form of government is the best form of government, but it is relative to the people. And that under certain conditions, it is more prudent to institute a different form of government. They do they do not make this the centerpiece of their rhetoric or of their argument because they think they have the kind of people and country that they where they can institute their most preferred government. But within the thought of the founders themselves, there's that kind of prudent flexibility that under certain circumstances, a non-Republican form of government might actually be the best way to secure uh, the natural rights of the people, we might want to say secure the all of the proper natural institutions uh, that exist in society. You talked about mechanisms for reform built into the constitution. Would that be something like a convention of states or what did you have in mind? I was I was thinking more of the of, of the president wielding the authority that is actually properly his. And I think this can be done actually in a in what is truly a constitutional manner. It would require cooperation from Congress, uh, but thinking about the administrative state as the most dysfunctional and and uh, most disruptive and least um, Republican, least uh, constitutional element of our present regime. Breaking that up could fire could a lot of through fire, fire a, lot a lot of people. people. It will require the cooperation branch. of Congress and very a very great exercise of will on the part of the president. But I would say it could be done in a perfectly constitutional manner. And wouldn't that be a great platform if somebody just got up on stage and said, "I'm going to fire the entire IRS and the." the entire department of education and all these three letter agencies. Wow. Joseph. 
Can I just add something that uh, that Pavlos obviously states quite correctly that the founders were steeped in in in, in classical antiquity as well as the Enlightenment, but they're also steeped in English history, and we need to remember that the Magna Carta was is, was a major influence upon the, the the founders, and and this is interesting from our perspective as Catholics because. The Magna Carta basically was brought into being largely uh, uh, under the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, obviously a Catholic in those days, Stephen Harding. He seems to have drafted a large part of it. He seemed to be the person that sort of brokered the uh, the get the, uh, the 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 king uh, being willing to to uh, to listen to the barons and sign and sign the document, and that became the basis of, of of English law, and also then became the basis of American law. So there we, we and and so there's this Catholic these actually catholic political philosophy as a, as a, a, an important threat in, in in the american uh republican experience can either of you describe or even define the poison in the well in other words there there is a sort of entropic force that's just sort of you know like democracy will break down to chaos eventually but there's also something that is compelling this globalized centralization of power. What is that? Uh, I know that many people have ways to speak of it. You know, the globalists, you know, secret societies, all this stuff that's probably for another, another podcast entirely, not the Magnus podcast, but what, what, what is this that is, you know, who's calling the shots, who's pulling the strings why is there this global movement to a centralization of power? I would, I well, would just, oh, go ahead, Joseph. I said, you know, I said, I'd like to speak to it, but you want to go first. What I was going to say. Uh, I would, uh, I'm going to answer this by stepping back a bit into intellectual history. Uh, if you look just within the history of political philosophy, uh, if you look at the contrast between Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas, um, there's, a, there's a strong recognition of the sort of hierarchy of different ways of life. I promise this is answering your question. <laughs> uh, of uh, the contemplative uh, or philosophic life understood philosophically or religiously or both uh, being the highest way of life for man, the, the, the thing that is going to most fully manifest and satisfy uh, human nature uh, in a natural or and or supernatural sense. Below that, kind of the nobility of the political way of life, um, the 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 way of life that puts into action at its highest possible levels the moral virtues, as opposed to the intellectual virtues, but the moral virtues. And below that, there there are sort of d- lower ways of life that are cons- that are devoted to um, making, uh, that are devoted to making money as well as making artifacts and beautiful things, um, and and more uh, ways of life that are more closely tied to necessity and just care for necessity. All of that should be probably modified once we think about the d- dignity of labor. I'm mostly giving an Aristotelian account, but it's for the purpose of contrasting it with what John Locke does, which is um, Locke seems to have an understanding of the fulfillment of man being found almost exclusively uh, in in productive labor that contributes to an economy. And I think once you once you get your anthropology um, I would say so wrong as to elevate the money-making life. Not that there's anything wrong with making money for its proper ends, but the money-making way of life uh, over the life of moral action in the political sphere, to say nothing of over uh, the way of life that's devoted to uh, contemplation of being or of God or sort of just philosoph- philosophizing about, about the universe. 
I think you are on, once you have committed to that sort of homo economicus uh, view, um, you are on the road towards the breakdown of the nation, the violation of all of these lower uh, societies that, that uh, according to subsidiarity, should be able to exercise their, their power within their proper sphere. And you're, in a way, on the road towards uh, globalization and globalism. It sort of may come about through economic globalization and free trade, but it, it, it never stops there. And once you've prioritized um, the convenience and comfort of life over everything else, uh, that it's, it's hard to put up those those other road. That is such an insightful answer, uh, Joseph. Before you chime in, Pavlos, just answer this: What is the check? What is there a practical check on Homo economicus? As you as you coin, I, did you coin that term? That's beautiful. It's not me. I don't know where it's from, but it's. I promise you, it's not me. Okay, um, so that's clearly the problem. But I mean, how do you how do you check that once that cat's out of the bag? I'm going to, I, I'm, I am a Catholic, I teach philosophy, but I'm also a politics guy. So I'm going to lean into the politics side right now, which is reassert the proper nature of politics, which mm. in the Aristotelian account and the pre-modern account is, Aristotle says it's the architectonic art. It acts like the architect does in relation to the laborer and the framer and the plumber, right? Sort of puts into its place all these lower arts and economics is one of those lower arts. It needs to be ordered to its proper good. So the kinds of resistance we see this coming up, just bubbling up in the in at least America and I think around the world today. The resistance on the part of states to you know multinational corporations that say you need to go along with a woke left wing agenda, or else we will pull our NBA game from your state or something like that. Yeah. Um, asserting through political channels, through a state governor or legislator, or hopefully at some point at the national level, uh, push back against those organizations, those economic entities that classical liberal philosophy, libertarian philosophy would say are they're they're just free actors and you're able to, you know, boycott them with your dollars if you'd like. That's not sufficient. To go back to Joseph's point, that's crucial. That's necessary to sort of vote with your dollar. But I would say that it's also necessary to remember what the proper scope of political power is to constrain economics or to channel economics when it needs to be channeled. Awesome. Okay, Joseph, what is the what is the force behind the centralization of things? Well, the, the key the key thing is that if you understand history, that um, that there's nothing new here. The, the, the technology is the, is the newfangled aspect of things, right? But everything else is is as old as sin. Um, uh, entropy that you speak of is uh, spiritual entropy is sin. Uh, globalism is an empire. Empires collapse. Normally, they, they collapse in upon themselves because of their own too muchness, their own inner decadence, corruption, their own pride preceding a fall. The European Union, by trying to, trying to grow too quick, too quickly, too powerful, um, ended up, you know, breaking up, uh, causing Brexit and then the 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 the, the Visegrad group, etc. So um, I would say that if you understand history, you, you see that in every single century, um, there's there's this battle between the city of God and the city of man. The city of man always has more power than the city of God. The city of man in every single generation seems to be triumphing and never triumphs. Um, uh, and whatever the, the, the latest centralization of power in, in terms of empire is, that empire will pass. The end of history is not the, it's not a triumph of globalism. The end of history is the apocalypse, whenever that happens to happen. Um, so and, until then, the same battle within the city of God and the city of man will continue, and it will be, and, and I can't allow Pavlos to be the only person that quotes uh, Tolkien, um, 
so I'm going to have to equalise here. Um, uh, so, uh, so uh, as, as, as Tolkien said, as a, as, a, as a Christian, I see history as the long defeat with only occasional glimpses of final victory. We're living in the long defeat. That we, you know, Even if we defeat uh, the powers around today, there'll be new secular powers that will come up tomorrow. The church militant is the church at war. This is a war that will continue. Christ says, I came to bring a sword. Uh, that sword will need to be wielded in defense of the city of God against the city of man until the end of time. Um, all the things that Pavlos says we should be doing today, I agree with. Right, This is the wielding of the sword in our particular hour. But we mustn't allow our particular hour to allow us to lose sight of uh, of the, the the importance of, of of first of all eternity, but then time, um, history. And if we don't know where we've been, we don't know where we are. And if we don't know where we are, we don't know where we're going. So uh, we have to keep that bigger picture in mind in order to be able to wield the sword uh, all the more uh, effectively in our own time. That's beautifully said, and I think with technology that is something new to the centralization of power is the unity of technology with the human body. And this seems to be a, a globalist uh, uh, hobby, right? And, and it, like I went into Whole Foods the other day and there's a machine that says I can pay with my hand. And that's, that, you talk about the apocalypse. Uh, and so we're seeing, and you know, say what you will about Laudato Si, the encyclical Pope Francis, but there is a beautiful section on there in there about the technocratic par- paradigm, so this ironclad logic that is is calling us all into a certain form of com- a certain form of commodification and slavery. So, and that does strike us as a little bit eschatological and something that's scary. And we're almost at a point where the powers that are maneuvering to make this happen are almost feeding off of the public fear that it generates. So. They know that they know that people are against them in all these ways, but they press on. And I'm wondering, you know, what do you do about that? Uh, it's a very general question, but but what should our response be to not only the centralization of power, but the the overreaching into the family, into the flesh, into the body, into the very nature of the human person that seems to be turning us into something like a beast or something like a machine, but nothing like a human. This, this is, I think, another place where I would, I would say the, the problem is so great that it actually requires a political response of a very high kind. And I do not mean to say that we should wait around for the political response. We, we should, and, and I, I live in a community, I, I um, teach at a college that takes the problem of technology very seriously. And so I am all for those kinds of solutions on as close and personal and local institutional a scale as possible. Uh, but it is also a problem of such magnitude that I, I am hoping, praying, and voting uh, for, as, as, as often as I can, um, for political solutions to restrain uh, the addictive, addictive tendencies in technology that are built in um, to restrain the uh, yeah all of, all of those trends that you were, um, that you were alluding to, John. Um, I would add uh, there's a um, Italian philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, who um, uh, is a kind of radical, kind of left-wing philosopher, but who in the last few years fell out with his radical friends because he came out very strongly against the response to COVID um, and wrote a number of very provocative and insightful essays uh, in response to uh, the lockdowns and the culture of masking and all of these responses. 
Um, and I would I would note this this one very short essay that he has from maybe March or April of 2020 uh, about the face and the human face. And he mentions that the human face is the site of politics. The human face is is what makes us or reveals us to be uh, political animals. And just being able to sort of encounter one another face to face, I say, ironically, we're on on Zoom and I'm just seeing the simulacra of your faces, but uh, uh, it's useful from time to time. But having that face-to-face contact, I'm going to sound like a localist, having that face-to-face contact uh, is incredibly uh, reminding of how uh, we are not ghosts and machine. We are not just users who create their own avatars. We are not just minds that have this meat attached to it that we can customize. We, in fact, are body, soul, spirit unities. Um, And if we're going to live happy uh, lives, we have to accept that that is our nature. Go ahead, Larissa. You look like you have something you want to chime yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, I um, am thinking about all of this in relation to what Joseph was saying about the church triumphant and the church militant and the city of God and the city of man. And the city of God is the I- ideal. It's our ideal to get to the city of God and be part of the church triumphant. And to, to what you were just saying about seeing a person's face, um, it almost seems like that form of government, well, going back to Donald Trump too, um, sorry to go there, but you know, we love him. Those of us who love him, love him because he <laughs> is a strong, he's a strong, he's a Some strong, people might. he fights for democracy, right? But why do we hate him? Because he's not regal. He's not a king. And we want an ideal. We want I don't want to say we want a king, but we want, we love the queen. We love the queen because she is a person and she's this ideal and she gives us something to aspire to. Um, And I don't know if you guys have seen the crown. I won't go into too much detail, but there's this scene where the queen and the prime minister are talking and she's complaining because she's like, I'm a person too. And we get tired and we do all these things. And he says, but the people don't want a normal person. They want a queen. They want an ideal. They want somebody to elevate them. Mm. And with the I don't know, the last couple of things you've just said have really, I mean, can we have can we have that? Can we can we have a king? Not a king, but can we have the ideal in the form of government that we have? Or can we have the form of government we have and have a king? Or maybe it, we, we, we have Christ the King. And insofar as we keep our, our, our minds and our hearts uh, uh, at his service, we will be at the service of our of our neighbors. Um, that's that's the ultimate mo- monarchy. Uh, good monarchs like St. Edward the Confessor and like Queen Elizabeth II, who saw themselves as servants of their people because they were Christian. All right. So but that's because that and and and, and Queen Elizabeth the second said, I, I'm looking forward to the day when I can hand my crown to the king. Mm. Right. She, she knew that who who exactly she she, she she believed in one government under God. Her government was under God. Um so anyway, I can care about other examples of good kings, but there are there are good kings and queens, but they're a minority. But there, there is the good king, and he reigns, and we're all going to go and meet him, all of us. And we will be judged by him. That's why we need to keep our eye on the finishing line 
always and don't allow the day-to-day political happenings in the world to distract us from the finishing line. Of course, we have to fight. We are in the church militant. We are Milus Christi. We're soldiers for Christ. So we do have to wield the sword, but we have to wield the sword with the finishing line always in mind. Yeah. Larissa, you just hit the nail on the head when you said people who hate Donald Trump hate him because he's not their ideal, right? And and he's not he's not that. Uh, and it's true that everybody on the left when they were hating on Donald Trump, what did they say? Oh, how do you like this guy who paid for abortions and had so many wives and he's just a schmuck. And that never bothered me at all about him, probably because I wasn't looking for him to be my king. Uh, and I had another moral ideal uh, who who is the king of the universe. And I didn't need to find that in Trump. I didn't have like these theological daddy issues that so many on the left have. Like they want they they're looking for a king and so they're going to they're going to pin him on all of his foibles and and moral faults is but, it daddy? i mean do we want that i would say we don't want that in a secular leader because they're always going to fail you and if you if you had any insight into the queen or the or you know the, certainly the kings sorry john we do we do want in the secular leader we want a secular leader to be a servant of the people we want a secular leader to be like Elizabeth the second saint edward the confessor and we and and the, you know whether it's a, whether it's a, a president of a republic or whether it's the 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 the, 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 the monarch in a monarchy we we should demand that that the people practice uh, virtue in accordance with, with the way we're all supposed to be practicing virtue monarchs rulers are not are not uh, um, uh, are not above are not above the moral law. Um, I think it's okay to demand. That doesn't, doesn't mean, of course, that we refuse to vote for, for for people because they're sinners, because everybody's a sinner. But I do I do think that we should be we should we should not be careless about. I would agree. We, it's totally it's totally it's good to demand it of our of our leaders and and to live up to ourselves. But what we shouldn't be is scandalized when they're not what the ideal is, right? Because everybody's going to fall short of that. And it's like the Psalm says, put not your trust in princes. Princes are administrators and they're always going to fail you um, because administrators are, you know, fail, right? So yeah, I think, I think we agree on that. Pavlos jump in there. Yeah. I would, I would just note because I'm also a Plato guy that, Plato, in a way, anticipated uh, some of this, which is one of the great images for Christ uh, in in the Gospels is is the shepherd, right? And and in the Republic, um, Socrates compares the best ruler in the city uh, to a shepherd, who, by the way, needs sheep dogs to guard his sheep from the wolves. So we we need we need the church militant. Uh, we need uh, knights. We need uh, people who are serving and and being warriors. Uh, for the faith and for uh, the oppressed, the afflicted, the innocent who are threatened by the wicked in this world. Uh, but that that role of serving as as shepherd to one's people is exactly it's something that philosophers can recognize and it's something that that revelation affirms and and perfects and and heightens. Um, the the willingness to to care for one's flock is precisely what we need to look for uh, uh, in our leaders. And and lay down their lives for I guess that'd be the mark of a good shepherd is and that's that's the distinguishing mark between a just king and a tyrant, one who's going to rule for the good of his beloved and the good of his ruled or rule for his own good. And I think right. anybody can see that, and it's and it's so repulsive 
when you see a self-serving leader, it's it's the lust for power. As Joseph Pieper says, the lustful man above all wants something for himself. And that's always disgusting. And let me add one more thing to that, which is in in Aristotle's analysis, the, the difference between the monarchy and the tyranny or the aristocracy and the, and the oligarchy uh, is whether the correct governments are those that pursue the good, the advantage um, of those that they are ruling over, as opposed to their own private class advantage, as you were just mentioning, John. There isn't a third option, according to Aristotle. You're either using the power in the office that you have to secure the good of those who are under your care, or it's your own good. There isn't a kind of abstract, I am going to secure the good of humanity instead of my own personal good or the good of my people. No, you are in, if you're in an office over, over some of your fellow citizens, it's your responsibility to pursue their good properly understood as opposed to, or rather than uh, privileging your own good. But there isn't some third possibility. And sometimes today, uh, the rhetoric, especially of of humanitarianism and globalism, makes it seem as if there is some third and even more noble option, and 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 there isn't. All right, Pavlos, now is your chance to announce your candidacy for mayor of Lander, Wyoming. Absolutely not. But come you. on, man. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I have my own vocation. And I know that that's not it. Isn't that the thing? Is to be the king. The, yeah, I mean, the best ruler is like Gregory the Great, right? They wanted him to be Pope. He's like, oh, no, okay. Okay. In that case, people. I'll say I'm very eager to be put in a position of power because once I say that, I know I won't. I won't uh, you yeah. got me there. <laughs> I mean, but that's it is, is that the, those who are most capable of ruling want nothing to do with it. So it is a dilemma. What do you think, Joseph? You want to be king? King said that the problem with politics is that the people that want, want, to, want political power are ipso facto the people who don't want to have it. Yep. Uh, that also means, by the way, Pavlos, I beat you two, two goals to one in the mentioning of Tolkien states. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's a that's a great place to wrap. I think this is a beautiful discussion. So takeaways, family, localism, subsidiarity, solidarity. And after talking to you two gentlemen, maybe hope, which we could use a little bit, a little bit more of. All all is not lost. And to see so many people flocking to the right sort of things is really hopeful. It's not all lost. Is that fair to say? Of course, but as I said, that ultimately this is just a, this is just a training ground for eternity, and 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 that that's all we need, we need to keep that in mind. It's a training ground for for eternity. We are called to to love our neighbor, to love the Lord our God, to lay down our lives for others in order to get to heaven. And if we keep that in mind, then we, would, we will actually make the world a better place. And that's ultimately what politics should be about. Pablo, I'm going to I'm going to end, end your question. Your, your last question here is, is what's the limit and when do we fight? You know, when I go to that uh, Whole Foods checkout station and see pay with your hand, I, you know, like, what do I do about this? I give I give the clerk a funny look, you know, it's like, but part of me wants to rip that thing out of the counter. Um, Next time you come back with a baseball bat, right? Yeah. yeah, but we, you know, I obviously can't endorse that, or 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 should we? Like, I'm almost torn by it. Like, at what point do we? Well, fight? Can I can I, can I yeah. be controversial here again? Uh, well, my my wife and I, our family, have stopped using Whole Foods ever since they were bought out by Amazon. Um, and we do all of our shopping from local farmers markets and, 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 uh, we're happy to spend extra dollars 
as votes to get a, a good local economy and not buy into the whole globalist uh, so you shouldn't be going to Whole Foods in the first place and then you wouldn't have been offended by this uh, this globalist technology you're seeing Check globalist me. Checkmate. Johnson loses. I yeah, would you're add, right. Why am I going to Whole Foods? Okay, I need I need to one-up that somehow. I would say you should be you should be keeping your own chickens as as we started to do this past Check. year. Got them. Uh, Got them. Keep your yep. own chickens. Um, do not shop at Whole Foods, but also positively go in there with a baseball bat and smash the post-human technologies that that you see afflicting your neighbor. So you need to go there out of love of neighbor. Okay. And I don't think they let me be executive director of Alberta's Magnus Institute when I'm arrested for, if they're even, you know, arresting people for these things anymore. Um, but yes. Okay. So I, when do we fight? The answer to that question is when it's prudent as the answer to anything, any moral question is. That's right. And I would, I would add that um, the only the only so in a way the answer is you you always fight but the question is when do you maybe when do you take up arms and that is a yep. that is a very serious matter um, that requires a very great deal of prudence um, but I would say that that you always need to be fighting whether it's directly or or indirectly um, with your choices with your way of life with your witness um, and that the only the only people who if we could say they deserve political servitude are those who do not fight uh, to to stave it off. Um, when it is when it is coming towards them, right on. And I'll just share between you three and the NSA currently listening to this Zoom recording that we do not endorse taking up of arms uh, unless it's prudent. All right, <laughs> Joseph, go ahead. I, I would I would just got to say that um, uh, and Christ it said nothing about taking up your baseball bat. <laughs> uh, yes. The peaceful right. Englishman. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got a tunic to sell. Uh, thank you all very much. This is a beautiful kickoff to the next season of the Magnus podcast and looking forward to have both of you teaching courses for our now uh, 817 fellows at last count. So exciting things afoot. And thanks to your help from the beginning, uh, you really have made this place special for us. So Larissa. Joseph, where can we find you? And Pablo's, where can we find you guys? Oh, yeah. Plug right. stuff. Yeah, go to my personal website, jpierce.co. So it's J-P-E-A-R-C-E.co. And that's where you find out what I'm up to. And I uh, record three new podcasts every week for the Inner Sanctum of that site and, uh, and, and other stuff. Awesome. awesome. Pablo's, your Twitter handle. You are a Twitter fiend, my friend. You just <laughs> you make Twitter a great place. Uh, my Twitter handler, handle is pleonitis. P because those are my initials, Pavlos Papadopoulos. That actually is my middle name. I did not choose it, but I, I accept the middle name Leonidas. Uh, and in 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 reality, you can find me in Lander, Wyoming, teaching at Wyoming Catholic College. And we'll probably see you in person there soon, Pavlos. Can't wait. Thank you guys so much. On behalf of Larissa Bianca, Pavlos Papadopoulos, and Joseph Pierce, I'm John Johnson reminding you of my name and magnusinstitute.org for more. Become a fellow today. You'll be glad you did. Thanks, guys. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.